Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. to the 30 podcast here's your host jazz kang all right welcome to a new episode of the 30 before we jump into things don't forget subscribe to the liberty ballers podcast network you can catch us pretty much anywhere you get your fix and of course check out libertyballers.com as we gear up for the start of training camp the sixers will report for media day on monday so i'm anticipating we'll get some questions about just kidding we're going to get a bunch of questions about ben simmons and then we'll see what uh we'll see kind of what the reaction is like and then the sixers will be on the court for workouts for training camp on tuesday joining me for this episode a man who has covered the team since 1988 also currently the philly sports columnist for the bucks career bucks county courier times mr tom moore tom thanks for taking the time out to do this uh sure jazz thanks thanks for having me so let's just, it's been a pretty quiet few weeks in Sixerland, right? I'm, I'm, I'm assuming you haven't had too much to cover and, uh, and write about. Uh, what is the, what have the last, you know, two, three months been like for you, just in terms of trying to keep on top of all the nuggets we're getting and, and the work you're doing behind the scenes involving Ben Simmons? Yeah, I mean, it's right. You just uh, kind of check in with sources and people and keep your eyes and ears open for what the national people are reporting and, um, yeah, it's a very strange, you know, like I covered Charles Barkley after four years, he wanted out here in 92 because he thought ownership was more committed to, to making money than winning a championship. But that really kind of didn't drag. He was traded. Um, I was on vacation visiting my sister, of course, in, in like mid June when it happened, but it didn't drag on all summer into the fall and wasn't an issue, you know, at training camp, um, uh, the next year, you know, in, in September, October of 92. So yeah, it's been a little strange and kind of drawn out and quiet for a while. And then you'll get sort of a flurry of what's going on and, um, you know, things like that. So yeah, it's, uh, it's been interesting. That's for sure. Oh, it definitely, it definitely has. It seems like the soap opera is, is never going to end at this point, but hopefully we do get a resolution at least, you know, in the next maybe couple of months. And, and who knows, this could, this could drag, into the season as we get closer to the trade deadline, depending on what type of offers the Sixers are getting and how they're doing on the court. I uh, wanted to go back to what you reported on Wednesday. You had you had mentioned that Ben Simmons and his agent, of course, Rich Paul of Clutch Sports, uh, had told the Sixers when they were in Chicago after the playoff loss to the Hawks, um, this was for the draft combine, that, that basically Simmons wanted out at that point. So this has been something that has been on the organization's mind. And, and they heard straight from the source, I would say, in, in terms of Rich Paul, back in back in June why do you think at that point Daryl Morey and the rest of the Sixers brass kind of believed there was still a way for Simmons to come back next season given what had taken place uh not only on the court during that the disappointing seven game loss to the Hawks but the reaction that uh and and some of the sound bites that we heard which Doc Rivers addressed 
on first take and did some media rounds on Wednesday. And then you also had uh, Joel and Beat saying what, what he said about, you know, what the turning point of that of that series and that game was. So, yeah, going back to the question, why do you think Maury and, and the rest of those guys believe there was a way Simmons was going to come back next season? Well, I, uh, you know, the game seven loss was, I believe it was a Sunday, June 20th. Mm-hmm. And then the, uh, the pre-draft camp, the combine was June 21st to 27th. So I guess the Sixers perception was, you know, it was kind of fresh in their minds and it gave them a chance. Um, it, it wasn't released until Keith Pompey reported it, you know, two months later that um, Simmons had talked to, you know, the Sixers brain trust, uh, Maury. Maury, uh, Brand, uh, Rivers, et cetera, Josh Harris, I believe out in LA and had told them in late August that he wanted to be, you know, he wasn't going to report and he didn't want to play here, you know, again. So it gave him two months to try to make a deal. And as I understand it, you know, there was nothing close to what Maury thought was a, was a, you know, a, a reasonable, uh, return for a three-time all-star runner-up for NBA defensive player of the year last season, et cetera. So once Keith Pompey reported it became public knowledge, um, you know, now probably a lot of people around the league knew already, but now everybody knew, and that certainly didn't help his perceived value around the league. And everybody's trying to, you know, get a distressed asset for lack of a, a better term um, and, you know, pay 50 cents on the dollar. So, and I think what happened is Daryl Morey and the Sixers are realizing, you know, like this is a, a way for us to improve or at least improve in other areas. And if we don't get, you know, another star or at least, a, you know, an all-star caliber player in return, you almost always lose a trade when you trade a star if you don't get a star in return. So I think that, you know, with, with not being able to get, uh, you know, an elite player in return, they're just kind of waiting and hoping now whether, you know, whether Rich Paul and, and Ben Simmons, if, you know, they start, start being fine and having to pay. And also I couldn't find out. I tried to find out because he's due eight and a quarter million dollars in a payment on October 1st. And I tried to find out what the Sixers plan is with that. Are they going to withhold it? Can they withhold it? Um, because he's on the roster, but if he holds out and I wasn't able to find that out, um, you know, what the person I talked to said the Sixers hadn't, you know, disclose that or whatever. Um, Cause that would be interesting too. He's already received apparently eight and a quarter million, but um, you know, if he can get 16 and a half million, I mean, he can certainly live on that for quite a, you know, quite a while. So yeah, we're kind of in a holding pattern and you know, the Sixers right now, he he's more valuable to the Sixers than any team in the league, but you know, would that trade. And I was also told that they're not, you know, they don't want him to come back to increase his trade value at this point. They want him to come back to play. Um, that could theoretically change, but right now that is apparently their thought process. So yeah, we, we have a big old, big old mess and who's going to blink first. Well, it's funny, Tom, I mean, $16 million, Ben Simmons might be live off for a year. We'll live off that for a lifetime at this point. So <laughs> oh, for sure. Yeah. That, that, that is no doubt about that. <laughs> when you're looking at, at how the Sixers organization has handled this whole thing since since it occurred like you mentioned the the game seven loss was on june 20th but you're looking at you know doc rivers what what he had said after the game when asked if, if he thought ben could be a champ you know point guard on a championship team and and you're looking at kind of how things have played out where like you're mentioning now okay the, the team was aware that you know ben wanted out after that loss and then you had 
um, you know, these ups and downs that we've had over overall, basically the last three months of it being, hey, you know, we want him to come back. And, you know, is he on the market? Is he off the market? When you look at this from, you know, your, your 33 years of covering the league, when you look at specifically the Sixers, but when you, when you look at that, how do you think the organization has handled this whole thing with Ben? Well, you know, I would say on the front end, part of the reason they're in this situation is because they enabled him and they did not hold him accountable, which I really thought, you know, Doc Rivers and his staff would have done that. My supposition is Doc Rivers supported him publicly, but, um, you know, behind the scenes, he was working with Sam, Camp, Sam Cassell and perhaps Sam Cassell privately was pushing more and encouraging more and, you know, trying to get more out of him in terms of being more aggressive offensively, looking for a shot, having confidence to, to drive late in the game and not worry about, you know, having to go to the free throw line, et cetera. Um, but, you know, Brett Brown coached uh, his dad, Dave, over in Australia. So he bent over backwards, you know, to kind of support uh, Simmons. And Doc Rivers did, at, at, you know, to the degree until the last couple games of the Atlanta series, he did the same thing, um, which I was surprised. And matter of fact, in the one game against the Hawks, he even, after Simmons admitted he needed to be more aggressive offensively and look for a shot and Rivers was asked about it he denied that was the case which his player had said like that was sort of a the the, the degree of sort of almost farce that he was going to support and they were going to talk about his defense and all the little things he does and they don't need him to shoot and it just kept happening but no one held him accountable no one made him do what he needed to do um, in terms of working with, you know, real, you know, uh, high level shooting coaches, as opposed to his brother in the off season and things like that. And, you know, to increase his confidence and his commitment, shall we say, to becoming a better basketball player. And um, so I do, I certainly don't say the Sixers are blameless here, uh, but <clears throat> You know, Simmons, if you want to be an elite player and, his, you know, he's a very good regular season player, but you've seen something similar, although albeit to a higher degree in terms of not taking a shot in the fourth quarter of the last four games in, in, in the Atlanta series, shooting, you know, 33% from the line in the Atlanta series, where if he shoots 50%, they win the series easily. Um, you know, it, he needed to improve and upgrade. And if anything, he regressed offensively which doesn't work. Um, and Tobias Harris is kind of getting off easy here because he did not play very well, especially in the fourth quarter of that, of those Atlanta, the games in the Atlanta series. And they needed him to be kind of that third score Embiid was and Seth Curry was, but they needed somebody else and they didn't get it. So Simmons is the whole issues with Simmons have kind of obscured the fact that, you know, Tobias Harris really let them down too. You know, you mentioned you mentioned Toby and and you know it looks like it could be a a, a good a very good third option on a on a on a championship team. I, I don't necessarily, in my opinion, I necessarily don't think he could be the second guy to Embiid and and hope to carry, you know, the the franchise to to a championship given the talent you have in the East now, especially with you obviously got the defending champion in the Bucks. You got Kevin Durant, Kyrie Irving, James Harden in the Nets. And then, you know, Miami now looking like another team that's going to make a run. So, you know, when you're looking at this and, and the options that the Sixers, 
you know, have at this point. And, uh, you know, the big dominoes, I think they're waiting to see what happens with Bradley Beal and Damian Lillard. Again, those two guys could elect to stay where exactly where they are, or those organizations could, could move, you know, them for another package to a different team. So you can't really sit there and, and hold out hope that for an extended period that that's what you're going to do. But one of the teams that had been mentioned as a possible destination for for Ben, the Minnesota Timberwolves, who seem like have been perpetually uh, making changes at the top, you know, since they've only made the playoffs once in the last 16 seasons. But you're, you're looking at this and, you know, they let go of Gross and Rosas, bought in uh, or promoted, pardon me, Sachin Gupta, uh, for now, at least, is, is kind of running things over there. But both of those guys have ties to Daryl from his days with the Rockets. Uh, when, when you're looking at that and, and these recent moves, do you think they could impact negotiations at all between the two teams moving further? Or is that just something that the Timberwolves need to take care of on their own end? Yeah, um, I think it was more new ownership with Alex Rodriguez and so on, you know, wanting their own guy. Um, you know, that happens a lot you know, in, uh, you know, high level with new uh, management, ownership, et cetera. Uh, I just don't really see, you know, like the best player there is Carl Anthony Towns. And I guess he could play power forward, but I don't know with him and Embiid, would that really work? That's really not necessarily what you need. And then what do you do with Tobias Harris? He's shown that he's better as a power forward than a small forward. So unless they would do, could work something out potentially where there's three or four teams involved and they get somebody from another team would come here. Um, and the other thing is the Sixers don't really want draft picks and young players with Embiid being 27 going on 28, you know, they're ready to win now. Their window is now. Um, so, you know, and I don't think Daryl Morey and Elton Brand want to acquire young players and draft picks and then have to be worry about turning them around for experienced players that can help right away because who knows what you'll be able to get, if you'll be able to get, and everybody knows what you're trying to get. So that would affect, you know, the value. Um, so I don't know that it, you know, I don't know that it would, you know, work, um, you know, that, that there's anything that could necessarily be done there. Like I said, unless Minnesota would be a third or fourth team to help convey, you know, other assets. One guy who's who's been talked about a lot, and I think there's going to be pressure on him going into his second season, and, and given what we saw at Summer League, and, and we caught glimpses of, of it as well last year during the regular season and playoffs, but how do you think Tyrese Maxey is going to handle the added pressure if, and it looks like at this point it's going to be most likely, but without Simmons in the picture for his 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 sophomore season? Well, I mean, I would think he was going to have a bigger role regardless of if Simmons is here or not, whether they want to you know, the only reason I could see maybe like Shake Milton or bringing a bigger guy and putting a bigger guy into the starting rotation is if you start Maxi and Curry, you're 6'3 and 6'2, and that's very small uh, matchup wise. And Curry's not a real good defender. Um, you know, that might not work, at least for major minutes. I could see a bigger guy starting, whether it's Thibault, if he can, you know, if he can improve his three-point shooting and to help at the defensive end, which is where they will really miss Simmons the most clearly. Um, but I think Maxi at worst would be like the sixth man where he's going to be the primary, you know, uh, guard wing off the bench, contributing, you know, scoring. And what I like is he sets guys up better than um, Shake Milton. And his, his defense and his three-point shooting improved a lot during the course of last season, which is very encouraging, um, which is what you want to see and, and let you know that, you know, his ceiling continue, he, he's continues to, to move closer to his ceiling. Um, 
So I, he will have a bigger role regardless, I think, based on what happened. And because he's one of the few guys on this roster who can create his own shot and shot for others that, you know, other teams have to, you know, game plan for and try to stay in front, just like the Sixers struggle with wings who are quick and create their own shots. Um, you know, the Trey Youngs and the, and the Bradley Beals and the Kemba Walkers and those guys. Tom, where do you think ultimately you're looking at this now, whether it's like I mentioned, it could happen within the next 90 minutes. It could happen a month from now. It could happen three months from now. We, we don't know, but where do you think Simmons ultimately ends up playing next season? You know, it, it's really hard to say, I would say, because, um, you know, I think for Daryl Morey and the Sixers, it's all about where they can get the most out in return for him. And if they don't get it at the trade deadline in February, um, you know, are they going to blink if he's still holding out? Um, will they wait and see if another team, uh, a high level team has a key injury with the window open to, to win? Um, it's really hard to say. I think it's wherever they get can get the best return in terms of, you know, a, a starting at, at minimum starting level, if not all-star caliber player um, in return, um, as well as, you know, uh, you know, maybe a draft pick or, you know, something that they could convey theoretically in a trade. I mean, barring Dane Lillard at this point saying, I'm not reporting, um, I don't want to be here, um, that would affect the value. But I have minimal you know, I have almost no interest in John Wall. I think his, his best days are behind him and I, he's very ball dominant. I just don't know that it would work that well. If you have a guy with Embiid, you have a guy, you want a guy who can shoot the ball and he's not a very good shooter. He, I mean, he was a very fast guy who could get to the rim, but I, I just, I, I, I can't imagine Daryl Morey doing a deal like that. Oh, for sure. I, I, I'm with you on the, on the John Wall thing. You know, I, his best days are behind him. And, and I'd mentioned this last week during an episode of the podcast that, you know, if he becomes a buyout thing, which the Rockets haven't said, I mean, sure, you could look at adding him for cheap to give you some depth, but yeah, no way I'm, I'm making that trade for a 25 year old, uh, three time NBA All Star and and all defense type type player. Um, gonna take a short break here, but I wanted to hop in some of the you know the older stories that we have about the Sixers and and looking back at at kind of what the the franchise has been like since you co- started covering them back in back in '88. We'll do that after a short break. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's Insight Assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. All right, and we're back. Uh, Tom, I was mentioning before the break, we're, you know, looking back at the at the Sixers' ownership history, uh, you've been covering the team since Harold Katz owned them, Comcast, you know, bought the franchise in 96. 
owned it up until 2011 when, when the current regime took over. And, but when you're looking at, I mean, and obviously times have changed over, over the last, you know, 25, 30 years, but when you're looking at the, the biggest differences between how each ownership group kind of approached this, what do you think between cats, Comcast and, and Josh Harris, what, what do you think the, the biggest difference has been in terms of trying to bring a championship to Philly? Well, one thing that's really interesting is, you know, when Harold Katz was here, you know, they had that awful draft day in, in 86 where they traded Moses Malone um, and Terry Catledge and two first round picks to Washington and got Jeff Ruland, who was pretty much finished and Cliff Robinson. Um, but what happened there was um, uh, Malone had two years left on his contract. He was the highest paid guy in the league at that point. And with no salary cap, the value decreases as you get closer to the end of your contract. Whereas now teams love trading for guys at the end of their contracts because that's either money that you can free up um, in free agency or you can trade a guy with one year left and get a, a, a player you know, perhaps slightly better with multiple years left if a guy who's who fits in. Now it's all about um, matching salary, you know, spots and maximizing, you know, contracts in terms of years left. If you're way over the cap and in luxury tax territory like Sixers, you're willing to take on guys with multiple years because once you get a really good core, you kind of run with it. So that's been a big thing in terms of, you know, how that has just totally changed that changed in, you know, really 20 years or so, let alone it's been 35, you know, since that, you know, since that happened, that's been a, you know, a very significant change. Um, and, you know, it, teams used to fly commercial and it just was very different. It, you know, uh, it wasn't such a, I used to go to all-star games and all-star games. We were invited to all the shows, all the VIP parties. And now it's completely different. It's all private party here. And Nike has one here and Reebok has one here. And, you know, players have them there, whatever. It, the, the league has just taken off and is just such a money-making machine. It, it's just so different. All the games are on TV. The games, there weren't a lot of games on TV back then. Now there's double headers, you know, multiple nights a week and, you know, Sunday games on, uh, on ABC, et cetera. Yeah, it seems like we're on overkill. I remember growing up in the in the 90s and and being like, okay, we get to watch the, the Vancouver Grizzlies play, you know, 40 regular season games and thinking that was great. Now you can watch them while you're sitting on the train, you know, on the, in the palm of your hand. So yeah. I've definitely seen the, seen the difference with that. Uh, when you look back at the Iverson era, uh, how bad the team was struggling before they took them number one in, in 96, you know, they missed the playoffs in, in AI's first two seasons. Uh, City hadn't seen playoff basketball for seven years at that point. What was the mood like around the team from the players, the coaches, executives, not only in that little short time before Alice uh, Iverson arrived, I was going to say Allen, but I called him Allison there. So that's my mistake. But, uh, and even in those couple of years after, what was the mood like uh, around the Sixers during, during that AI time in 96? Yeah. Um, at first the rookie year, uh, you know, it, it, he was playing very well, but they were losing and the fans were really disenchanted. They were really weren't that happy. Uh, Stackhouse was in his second year. They didn't compliment each other very well. They were kind of both trying to be the alpha male. Um, it really wasn't, that was also for Johnny Davis, who was a brand new coach and Brad Greenberg was a brand new GM. It wasn't really until they brought Larry Brown in, in 97 and he started trading and getting Eric Snow and Tyrone Hill and these guys who complimented Iverson and did the dirty work, George Lynch, these guys that, you know, these guys that did, uh, the things you need to do to win with Allen Iverson and allowed him to, 
you know, take 28 shots a game and so on. So it wasn't, you know, it wasn't an immediate thing like where he was exciting, but they were tired of losing. And that was in the wake of trading Barkley and not getting, you know, an all-star in return for Barkley in 92. And they, you know, they really struggled, you know, for a number of years, as I said, until Larry Brown came in and really turned things around. But there, there's definitely, you know, people were intrigued by him. People really liked him, but they were tired of losing and they wanted to win. And then once the Sixers started winning with Iverson, you know, being an all-star and all that stuff, that's when every, you know, everything really changed. Yeah, they, they had made the playoffs in, in 99 and, and 2000, getting to the, the second round. But you're looking back at that 2000-2001 season, the team won 56 games. That was the highest win total they had since 84, 85, although last year's squad likely would have beaten that total given they had a higher winner percent, winning percentage in those 72 games. But what were those series like to cover in the playoffs against the Raptors and Bucks? Uh, you know, going to seven and, and Philly obviously ended up winning those um, and, and making the get into the finals against the Lakers. But what was it like to cover those series? You know, you had the Vince Carter thing that he left to to go to North Carolina for graduation, came back the day of game seven, obviously missed that shot at the end. Um, that could have won it. But when you look at those postseason, that time in the postseason, what was that like for you covering covering those series? Yeah, it was pretty amazing. I always tell people that um, I um, I was invited to a wedding, my wife and I, in Northern California that year. Uh, it was Memorial Day weekend. And this will be the 34th season I covered the Sixers. And that is the only weekend I couldn't, go to a wedding well um based on what has happened you know uh because every other year they were eliminated or this year with a with the you know with the COVID and all everything was so late it would have been during the regular season you know the, the, the um so that was that was very strange but it was it was the most fun certainly um you know we you've had I had uh because they're winning and it was weird. Like I was out in LA for the first two games, of the finals and you come home and it's one, one and they were excited when they beat the bucks. But like in the four days I was out in LA and it came back, you know, there were signs everywhere on overpasses and people have the Sixers flags. Like it had changed. They, they really, the city just really sort of, you know, exploded in terms of, uh, you know, the interest and the, uh, you know, the excitement, uh, over, uh, the situation. Um, it, it was really, really amazing. Well, when you look at that, at that championship series, the final series against the Lakers in, in one, I mean, that Lakers team was a juggernaut hadn't lost the game going into that series against the Sixers. When you're looking back at that, did you actually think they, the Sixers had any chance to win that series? Uh, with the Lakers? Yeah. Yeah. I, well, I mean, the Lakers had swept, they hadn't lost and then they were off for like nine days because they won so quickly. The Sixers, mm -hmm. as you said, took seven games to beat the Raptors and seven games to beat the Bucks. So the Sixers had played um, a lot more games and only had one or two days off before that game. So, you, you know, you, you're thinking, all right, maybe the Lakers will be a little flat because they've been off, but the Sixers have played so many games and the Lakers were just so good with Shaq and Kobe. And then if one of their other guys, whether it was Ori or Fisher or whoever played well, forget about it. You know, they were almost unbeatable. So um, I was a little surprised they won, you know, game one, and then really were in good position to win game two before the, before the Lakers rallied. And then when they came back here, I think it was kind of like you had, you know, you had kind of awakened a sleeping giant and 
the, the Lakers were just too good. The Sixers had to try to single cover, you know, uh, Shaq with McTumbo, you know, who's a very good defender, but was 265 pounds. And Shaq was, you know, over 300, just so big and strong and would receive the ball down low. And there just wasn't a whole lot, you know, that, uh, you know, that the Sixers could do. I mean, the better team clearly won. I know some Sixers people were lamenting, well, boy, if the first, you know, uh, you know, if the first two games were at home or if it wasn't three, but no matter where those games three, four and five were played, it, it, it didn't matter. The, the, the Lakers were just a better team and we're going to win that series. A best of seven rarely does a lesser team win unless there's a significant injury like the Sixers with Iguodal and so on when they beat the, I guess it was 06 maybe with uh, whatever that was with uh, Maybe or maybe it was ten when Derrick Rose tore his ACL in the fourth quarter of the Bulls game one win, um, and the Sixers were able to win that in six. You know they were not a better team, but I mean the MVP of the league got injured and couldn't play in the final five games of that series. That makes a big big difference. Yeah, that that, that was uh, that was in in, in twenty twelve. And uh, yeah, right. Sorry. Yeah, no, it's all good. I mean, and going back going back, um, you know, just after that that loss, like you mentioned, I mean the Lakers were a juggernaut. Obviously, the last team to to three peat um in nba over the last you know 20 years but you're, you're looking at uh how the sixers responded from that they ended up being bounced in the first round the following season got to the second round in 03 lost to the pistons there but looking at the lead up to the breakup with with ai and and you know before he was traded to the nuggets in in december of 06 what was the mood like around the organization then did did, did that seem like something that was the writing was on the wall for quite some time or when, you know, Iverson kind of talked to management at the time, talked to Ed Snyder, uh, Billy King, what, what was it like around the organization at that time leading up to the trade in, in December of 06? Yeah, what had happened was Mo Cheeks was, was the coach and he and Iverson were really good friends um, when he was an assistant coach. They used to play around the world where you have to make, you know, five shots from five different spots. Um, and I'll, I'll never forget the one time Cheeks beat him so bad, like Cheeks finished. And Iverson was like on the third of five stations to make a shot. And Cheeks rolled the ball to Iverson and said, use this one. It goes in, you know, publicly um, in front of us, which I'm sure he did it privately. But I was just surprised because Cheeks was so low key and so, um, you know, not public at all, you know, with that stuff. Uh, but what happened was when Cheeks was the head coach, they couldn't have a relationship like that. You can't be good friends with your players. And Iverson's skills were starting to erode a little bit, didn't take care of his body, rehab as well as he should. And they wanted Andre Iguodala to initiate the offense more because what was happening was in, uh, um, uh, Iverson would bring the ball up and then kind of, you know, he would just do his thing. And it was one guy doing his thing and four guys standing around. So they wanted to get some other motion in the offense, let Iguodala initiate the offense. Iverson could run off screen, still would be, a, you know, an important part of the offense but they wanted to try to share the wealth a little bit. And he wasn't happy with that. And then I think Ed Snyder kind of said, look, it's time we need to do something here. And they had him sit out for a, a week or, or so on, and then sent him out to the Denver Nuggets in a deal for Andre Miller, you know, and some other assets. Again, you, you get it, you trade a star, you don't get a star in return. You, you know, you don't win that trade in the Sixers, you know, clearly did not. Not I'm not going to compare the two because Allen Iverson is a legend when it comes to to you know Philadelphia sports and and in terms of what he's done 
and his mark on the city. But I mean, similar things going on in terms of with Ben Simmons, both number one overall picks, both all-star caliber players. But from what you can recall now, and again, I know it's been, you know, 15 years. How did Billy King and Ed Snyder handle that situation in, in your opinion? Um, well, I mean, you know, they, they made a trade. They wouldn't, they, everyone knew they needed to trade, um, a star. So they weren't going to get, you know, a hundred percent full value in return. So they chose to make the best deal they could in a reasonable amount of time. So it didn't drag on, et cetera, which is a way to avoid distractions and so on, but it did not help the Sixers, you know, basketball wise, um, you know, and they, with, with few exceptions with that, you know, 2012 year, really, I guess, was the only time until um, Embiid and Simmons came that they won a playoff series, if I'm not mistaken. They would always make it and lose in the first round or not make it and, you know, but were close to the playoffs, so they would get the 10th pick or the 12th pick. So it's really, they were kind of in no man's land, which is really not where you want to be. You need to either be really good or really bad to take advantage you know, of, you know, the ways that's the, those are the ways to improve the biggest ways to improve in the NBA. Well, when you look at your career now, you know, like we mentioned, you, you've, you've been covering the Sixers specifically since, since 88, but you know, you cover the whole entire Philly sports scene. When you look back at being a youngster, young Tom Moore, what made you want to get into sports media as a career? Well, my dad uh, covered high school games uh, when I was a kid football, mainly football, basketball, and baseball. And I would tag along and just really enjoyed it. I went to Syracuse and certainly wasn't good enough to play any varsity sports there, let alone at the professional level. So I started working for the Daily Orange in college, and the, which is published five days a week, Monday through Friday, um, you know, covered college events, did a lot of track and cross country my first couple of years, and then became a sports editor my junior year. Um, so I would work like, you know, 30 hours a week. We'd work Sunday through Thursday, uh, you know, from like five until 5 p.m. to like 10 p.m. or 11 p.m. getting the next day's paper out and really got a taste of it and found out I really liked it. And then came here, covered high schools for three years and then got the Sixers job, as you said, in 88. And, you know, it's, the business has changed. It's all about online and getting some digital subscriptions. But, you know, it's still, and COVID has been crazy in terms of you know, getting to cover events live and you, you haven't been able to really do any interviews in person except for uh, Joe Girardi in the dugout before Phillies games and Phillies players outside. Um, but it, it, it sounds like the Sixers were going to be allowed to go with media day and practice. There's a limited number of people. You have to have your vaccine card and you have to wear your mask all the time. But it sounds like they're going to be able to do, be somewhat back to normal, not fully. We won't be able to go in the locker room at games or whatever, but we're going to be able to do more, um, which is good because you can theoretically, you know, right now there's a lot of pack journalism, but you don't have a choice. You get who they give you and there's not a, a big way to do more than that. So I'm looking forward to things getting back at least one step closer to normal. Yeah, there's definitely a difference, like covering teams through Zoom and actually being there. You just pick up so much more, you know, and like you mentioned, being at at uh, media day and training camp, it'll be interesting to see kind of what the energy is in the building, how the guys are physically responding to questions. I think all that has been missing, obviously, um, since the pandemic kicked off uh, back in, in 2020. All right, Tom, last one for you. I, I know you've covered a ton of, of, of big Philly moments. And, and, you know, like we've mentioned now, you know, covering the, the Sixers for the past 33 years. 
when you look at your career yourself, and, and I'm sure you're a sports fan in your, in your own way, but what is the fondest memory of yours during your time covering Philly sports teams? You know, it, it probably would be that run to the finals in 2001, just because that was the only team I regularly covered. That's why I was saying like this year uh, in 2020, 21, that was in 33 years, that was the second time the Sixers had the best record in the Eastern Conference and home court advantage throughout the, the conference playoffs. It doesn't happen very often. And when it happens, you need to take advantage of it. They did in 2001, barely in the, in the second round in the conference finals. But, you know, the, everything was, was set up right for them. They didn't have to play the Bucks or the Nets, theoretically, to the conference finals. There were some key injuries to other teams. Um, you know, the, the Hawks were clearly not a juggernaut and not a proven, you know, Trey Young was very good and they had some good young players. The Sixers had more experience, had the best home record in the Eastern Conference during the regular season and proceeded to lose three out of four at home to, a, you know, an inexperienced younger team. Um, so I think that would probably be, you know, just because it's the only time that it happened. I mean, I covered the Eagles in the NFC championship game, um, in seven, you know, in 17, um, you know, which was at home, which was a lot of fun and, um, you know, did some other pretty cool events, but I, I would have to say for a team that I covered and I traveled that year too. So I covered a lot, like, you know, 60, some of those 82 games that year. So that was a year that I really was, and the better the better teams do, the more cooperative generally they are with the media, the better the interviews are, the more accessible people are, et cetera, just in general. So from that perspective, it really was, you know, a once in a lifetime season, at least, you know, so far uh, for me. Well, hopefully, hopefully Daryl Morey and, and the Sixers brass can make another deal to get, to get another guy to play with and uh, beat. So we can be, we can be covering another championship uh, level squad again uh, this season. Tom, I, I want to thank you for taking the time out to, to, to do this and, and looking forward to reading your work and, and catching up with you uh, possibly next week at, at training camp as well. Sounds good, Jazz. Thanks for having me. All right, that's Tom Moore. You can follow him on Twitter at Tom Moore Philly. Before we wrap up, don't forget, just a reminder, subscribe to the Liberty Ballers Podcast Network. We're on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, you name it. Wherever you get your fix, we are there. And of course, check out libertyballers.com for all your six and needs.